0: Dear Father, please be with us just now. Open our minds, as always, to the truth about you. And really, the whole Bible, as we've discussed it thus far, is a story which concludes with your death, resurrection, and the early Christian church. <clears throat> and now as we come to people like Paul, Peter, and John, who've tried to interpret what it all means, please help us to come to a closer understanding especially of of who you are and uh, what we can do to come closer to you. Amen. Well, I thought it was uh, instructive actually to remember uh, how it worked during this time when Paul would write a book. And now we have, you know, so many Bibles sitting around in every home. But of course, back then, everyone didn't have a scroll in their home and they could just open up and read the Bible whenever they wanted to. And so the opening of Revelation is actually helpful to understand, help us understand, how it worked back in those days. Blessed is the one who reads, as well as those who hear the words of this prophecy and pay attention to what is written in it. Because as we've said several times, I think before, uh, when Paul finished the book of Romans, it was in one big scroll, no chapters, no verses, and it would arrive, and people would go to church, and someone would stand up and read the whole book through. Okay, which is really the absolute best way to uh, to go through and interpret any of these books, even Revelation. You know, think uh, we're not used to doing this. We tend to read these books through, and we come up with a verse that uh, we don't quite understand, and spent a long time trying to figure that one verse out or through Revelation, well, what is that horn? And we spent a long time, okay, let's try to identify that. And then we never actually get through the book. Okay, that's dangerous because um, if we just don't get the big picture, well, there is usually a big picture to all of these books. Just for example, we'll come to this verse, but if this is uh, the one verse we happen to read in Romans before going to bed, But my friend, I ask, who do you think you are to question God? Does the clay have the right to ask the potter why he shaped it the way he did? And uh, some of these things taken out of context uh, can be troubling. How does this fit in with the whole picture of what Paul is trying to say in the book of Romans? And of course, we just have to think, well, the whole Bible is a record of people like Abraham and Jeremiah and so on asking God. We don't understand God comes down, talks to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham says, You couldn't do that. Surely the judge of the earth has to do what is right. So, can we question God? I mean, yes, all the way through. So, what does this mean? And uh, again, we have to fit this in the context of the point that Paul is trying to make. All right, so the book of Romans opens up from Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and appointed to spread the good news of, or the good news about, God. And we've defined at every chance the good news as it comes up, which we did last time in Acts, that the good news is about God, good news is that God is kind, gracious, all of those things. And this is Paul's mission. God had already promised this good news through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This good news is, it's about a person. This good news is about his son our Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is about Jesus because what would we really know about God if we didn't have Jesus? God in human form. So the good news is about what Jesus revealed, about what the Father is like, about what God is really like in character. And so Paul goes on to describe that Jesus in his human nature was a descendant of David. In his spiritual holy nature, he was declared the Son of God. So Jesus, the God-man, God in human form. And so after some introductory comments, this is really the key, this is the heart of Romans. These two verses here describe Paul's whole thesis and the rest of the book is really just expanding on this concept here. So I want to make sure that that we get this, uh, understand this. Where he says, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is God's power for salvation. So what is God's power for salvation? It's the gospel, the good news. The good news, as we can show in so many places, is about what God is like. God is like Jesus. Now, how is that God's power for salvation? Well, we have to talk about this. It's the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Doesn't that just reinforce what we just said? What is the gospel about? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What does that mean, the righteousness of God? Jesus revealed what God is like. God is righteous. God is all of these other things, but this is a description, a character description of God. And this is what was revealed by Jesus. So for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel is saying the gospel reveals the kind of person that God is. And guess what? That understanding, that is the truth that sets us free. Again, it's the gospel, this power, which is really the love of God. What is revealed about how loving, how kind, how good God is, that is God's power ultimately to win us. We've said so many times, miracles, physical might and power, all of that, um, again and again and again, it just seems like that that has relatively little effect. The ultimate way that God has to win us is through this great unconditional love which ultimately was poured out in Jesus. That is God's power for salvation. And we'll notice here the word salvation, what does that sound like? Uh, You put on a wound, a salve. Um, Salvation... We can think here, well, this is our ticket to heaven, but uh, and, and this is true in a sense, but really it is for our healing, for our restoration. Uh, the word means uh, literally unbroken, to be healed. So the great love of God, which is poured out into us as we understand all of this and we come closer and closer to God, this is God's power not only to save us eternally, but also to change our own hearts and minds, to heal us. Okay, but notice here, this righteousness that is revealed about God, God's power, now what comes out of that? When you come to see, boy, God is really like this, I love and admire that, but what does that stimulate? Trust. From faith to faith, just as written, the righteous by faith will live. And anywhere in the New Testament, when you see the word faith, believe, trust, there is a single Greek word for all of those, pistis. So it is, um, you can use when you see faith, it's trust, believe it's trust and trust. I think really, and this is the heart of Paul's message here. It is, do you like what was revealed about God by Jesus? If you do and you respond to that, then the most natural thing in the world is to begin to trust in God. And that is it. That is all that God requires. Just like the thief on the cross. I mean, think how little he knew about anything. Okay, all he did was he just admired this person who was forgiving people, who was taking care of his mother, who is not angry in any way. And um, you know, we would think if you're dying, you're not going to be so concerned about someone dying next to you. But it was apparently such a moving experience for him, again, the revealed righteousness of God, the revealed character of God, that he responded and he was one to just trust the person next to him. How much did he know about who Jesus was? He just trusted him. And that was it. Hey, okay? you like me, you trust me. That is all that God asks of us. But if we live in that trusting relationship, then that's when all of the good things begin to happen within us. Okay, so I want to just give some other, because there are different ways of translating this verse, but I like how the NIV does it. For in the gospel, what's in the gospel? a righteousness from God is revealed. Or in the New King James, for in in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The character of God is ultimately what the gospel is all about. Okay, how does this work here? This is God's power for salvation. And Paul later on in Galatians would say, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith activated and energized and expressed and working through love. So again, it is the love of God, the character of God. This is the activating, energizing force that begins to work within us. And it is the most natural thing in the world when you come to see God to be this way, enter into this relationship to trust him. That love is what then stimulates all of the change Within us. Now, I like, I, I quoted this before, but Tim Jennings, if any of you have watched the, the DVD that we passed out a couple months ago, uh, he has a great uh, translation, paraphrased translation of the New Testament. And I'll just put up his thoughts on this. I am not ashamed of the good news about God, his character, methods, and principles, because this truth is God's power that heals. Notice salvation heals that heals everyone who thinks it through and trusts him. For the good news is a revelation of God's true righteousness, character, methods, and principles that restores trust in God and results in recreation of a righteous and Christ-like character, just as it is written, the Christ-like will live by trust. And again, you wouldn't get this from the Greek, but I think it absolutely captures the meaning of these two verses. All right, so after saying this is what it's all about, then Paul goes on to describe, here's what happens if you reject this. So this is why he puts it right up front. And I've shown this so many times, I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but Paul goes on to describe what happens if you're not one to see God in this way and to trust him. What happens? Well, God's anger is revealed and he goes on to say God punishes them. And now he is going to define what God does when he's angry, and how God punishes. And as as we've went through several times in the New Testament, dozens and dozens of examples in the Old Testament. What is God's anger? What is God's wrath? And Paul puts it all together here. He knows his Old Testament so well. Here's what it is. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals, or birds, or animals, or reptiles. And so God pours out his wrath on these people. What does he do? And so God has given those people over. He does everything that he can for them, but he does not restrict their freedom. He will let them do what they want to do. He gives them up, gives them over. This is God's wrath. Notice what they do. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. That is the underlying fundamental thing. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. This is the the center. Again, the gospel, the good news, it is at the center what God is like in character. That is what we have to respond to. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself. Because they do this, again, what does God do? He's done everything possible. He gives them over to do what they want to do. And again, because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, they reject that God is like this, kind, gentle, humble, so on. What does he do to them? He gives them over to corrupted minds. Now, what happens when God gives people up? He can't win them, and they have corrupted minds. And then Paul has this description. They're filled with all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, vice. They're full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deceit, and malice. They gossip. Gossip. It's interesting that gossiping makes the list here. Uh, they speak evil of one another, they are hateful to God, insolent, proud, and boastful, they think more ways to do evil, they disobey their parents, they have no conscience, they do not keep their promises, and they show no kindness or pity for others. Okay, so Paul first of all describes people that go into complete rebellion, this is what God will do to someone who goes into complete rebellion, and this is the natural result, the character change that happens when God can do no more and when there is a separation that occurs. Okay, but now Paul turns his focus to his Jewish audience. And the book of Romans really is meant to win the Jews over. So he describes it this way. These people are on a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental (coughs) criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. Um, I like this translation of the message, but Paul now is talking to the Jews um, who haven't gotten the message. So he goes on. If you're brought up Jewish, don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your religion and take it easy, feeling smug because you're an insider to God's revelation, a connoisseur of the best things of God, informed on the latest doctrines. I have a special word of caution for you who are sure that you have it all together yourselves. And because you know God's revealed word inside and out, feel qualified to guide others through their blind alleys and dark nights and confused emotions to God. While you are guiding others, who's going to guide you? I'm quite serious. While preaching don't steal, are you going to rob people blind? Who would suspect you? The same with adultery, the same with idolatry. You can get by with almost anything if you front it with eloquent talk about God and his law. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus, he, these were the people he referred to as hypocrites, right? This is who Paul is talking to. Um, I found it interesting that the word hypocrites, at least in ancient times, is not a bad word at all. Um, hippo just means under, and the last part of the word, word means a mask. So literally it is an actor one who pretends. And these people talk about God and the law, but deep down are uh, rotten to the core. So the line from scripture, it's because of you Jews that the outsiders are down on God. And they really let him down and uh, betrayed his uh, reputation. All right, so Paul now is talking to the Jewish people. And uh, I'll just skip ahead because so much of this is him trying to communicate with these people who rejected Jesus. And he would say later in Romans 10, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is that the Jewish people might be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Instead, they're clinging to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. They won't go along with God's way. And if we wonder sometimes why does Romans have so much uh, legal metaphors and uh, ways of explaining things, who's Paul trying to reach all the way through here? It is people who are working very hard to get right with God by keeping the law. And that can be a discouraging thing. So he's trying to reach these people. All right, now, in the middle of this, after saying, okay, here's what happens if you rebel and now you Jewish people who have reject, rejected Jesus, let me tell you something. Now there is a very, very stunning uh, passage here in Romans 2 about the Gentiles, the heathen. The Gentiles who do not have the law, but whenever they do by instinct what the law commands, they are their own law, even though they do not have the law. Their conduct shows that what the law commands is written on their hearts. Their consciences also show that this is true since their thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. And so according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. I want to come back to this last part because I think this is very critical. But what is Paul just saying here? The heathen who know nothing of the law, know nothing about Jesus, but yet what have they responded to? Um, Well, conscience. They've responded to God in other ways, and they have the law written on the heart, meaning, hey, they love others, they're kind, they're good people. Though they don't know all of the things, perhaps, that we know, God accepts those people. And it must have been a a contrast here, as he's saying, hey, you Jews, you know the Bible inside and out. Uh, You know so many things that God gave, but yet, look, you you just killed the Son of God. And now the heathen here, he's saying, hey, some of the heathen even have the law written on the heart. It's amazing. And he would go on to say, For he is not a real Jew who is only one outwardly and publicly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and true circumcision is of the heart, a spiritual and not a literal matter. So what God really wants is a change on the inside. Now just on this verse, because this is... um, well, how do I say this? Uh, this idea that some people who know nothing of Jesus, but yet they've responded to God in some way—that these people uh, are actually saved—this, of course, is uh, stimulates a lot of debate and controversy. If you do a Google search here on C.S. Lewis, you'll find a number of people quite upset with uh, C.S. Lewis. And I, I posted this. Uh, uh, this is actually discussed at, at the, uh, on the DVD that uh, that some of you have, but. Uh, There's this quote at the end of the Narnia uh, books of the Narnia series where C.S. Lewis describes a person who has been following a heathen god named Tash. All right, and um, not Aslan, of course, who represents Jesus. And so he arrives, so to speak, in the kingdom to discover that here he is with Aslan. And uh, I'll just read the description here. But I said, alas, Lord, and the man is talking, I'm no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. And he, Aslan, answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account a service done to me. Then by reason of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it then true, as the ape said, that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me and said, It is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. But notice, I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me. And none which is not vile can be done to him. So in other words, this individual, though perhaps calling God here by the wrong name, but yet, notice, if if something is done really with the right motive, that would be still responding to God, though we might be calling our God by the wrong name. For he goes on, therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he is truly sworn, though he know it not. And it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves. And how many people in human history have claimed the name of Jesus? We trust in Jesus but yet those were the people that burned the martyrs at the stake and so on. So the spirit with which it was done, even using the right name for God. I mean, it was the people at the cross, right? Who were doing all the external things, calling God by the right name and crucified Jesus. So anyway, this C.S. Lewis description of someone arriving to find out, uh, hey, I was expecting to meet Tash and here I'm meeting Aslan. That the person was really responding to Aslan, so to speak, all along. And for those of you that are uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, I just put this up here as a very uh, perhaps a liberal quote, but let me just read this from Ellen White, <laughs> who is thought perhaps to be a bit of a strict fuddy-duddy. But this, this quote is very liberal here. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology. This comes right out of Romans 2. But what have they done? They've cherished his principles. What are God's principles? Love others, be kind even to our enemies. They've cherished those things. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they've been a blessing to those about them. About them, Even among the heathen are those who've cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. I mean, how gracious is our God here? Though ignorant of the written law of God, they've heard his voice speaking in nature. Now, this is interesting. They don't know Jesus, but who is the God of nature? I mean, it is Jesus. So these people really are responding to Jesus, though they've never heard of him. And they've done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts, and they are recognized as the children of God. Okay, that's, again, straight out of Romans. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't go throughout the world and tell people about Jesus? Absolutely not. We have the greatest treasure to tell people, hey, God is just like this. This is the clearest light revelation that the world will ever get about God and what he's like and his character, and this is what will win countless people to God's side but again, the point is, some people have responded to that in different ways. Okay, so again, the Gentiles, the heathens, some have responded. And uh, this last passage here, And so according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God, through Jesus, will judge the secret thoughts of all. And I think the meaning here is, according to the good news, that is the revealed love of God, ultimately through Jesus, but in many other ways, It is our response to that. Have we become kind people based on what we know God to be like? It is based on our response to that good news that determines everything. Heathen, whoever. God has revealed himself in many ways. And for some people, it may just be through nature, but they've come to believe that God is good and they are kind to other people. And uh, those kinds of people God uh, can work with when they arrive in heaven. All right, so now after going through all of this, Paul now expands on this concept about God's goodness and our response and trust to that. So I want to go through this passage in some detail. This is in Romans 3. For no one is put right in God's sight by doing what the law requires. What the law does is to make us know that we have sinned. That is a great description of the law. If we want to use a medical uh, illustration, um, it would be like, well, a patient who is uh, smoking four packs of cigarettes per day and drinking, um, you know, vodka around the clock. And the patient feels fine. And, well, we come along and, let's do some testing. And we reveal uh, maybe a CT of the chest that shows cancer. Or, uh, you know, we actually show the patient, look, this way that you're headed is leading to a horrible, devastating consequence. And that is what the law is for. That is what our conscience is for. It is to reveal to us when we are completely going in the wrong way. Now, how do we respond to that? Um, If uh, you you found out, boy, I've got a, a spot on my lung from smoking, okay, revealed by the law, so to speak, do we then get the scalpel out and ourselves try to cut it out? Okay, that doesn't work, obviously. So our choice here at this point, once the law has revealed to us, our conscience has revealed to us how we are completely out of harmony with the God of love, our choice is either to do it ourselves or just to turn to our heavenly physician and uh, to allow him to heal us. So Paul goes on. But now, God's way of putting people right with himself has been revealed. This is what we want to know. It has nothing to do with law, even though the law of Moses and the prophets gave their witness to it. God puts people right through their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, trust, faith, same thing. This is how God puts people right. Do you trust in Jesus? What was revealed about God by Jesus? God does this to to all who believe or trust in Christ because there is no difference at all. Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right with him through Christ Jesus who sets them free. What sets us free? The truth will set us free. Truth about God. Paul goes on. And now here's the the difficult verse in this passage. But what has been the point so far? Everything is about trust. If we trust God, that's it. That's good. That's all that God asks of us. Now, verse 25, God offered him so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. And I know this has come up before, but since there's a lot of discussion uh, about this verse, what I have underlined here, the means by which people's sins are forgiven, this is a a single word. Okay, because we want to know what this word is. Now, the King James translates it this way, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, of course, Paul didn't use the word propitiation. That is a Latin translation of a Greek word. So we want to go back and say, okay, what's the Greek word here, which is translated propitiation or the means by which people's sins are forgiven. And the word is hilasterion, which means the lid the lid of the covenant box. Remember, there's a three-inch layer of gold. And so Jesus literally became the lid. Okay, and so we want to know what does that mean? How is that involved? The whole description here is about God winning us to trust. And notice, God did this. Why? To demonstrate that he is righteous. Okay, what's the meaning? Well, way back in Leviticus, we talked about the sacrificial system. And out in the outer court, there's the brazen altar, the bronze altar, which represents the rebellious heart and mind. And the sacrifice is done out there. The blood, of course, is applied. The, the blood, which we are to ingest, internalize, is the truth about God. That wins us. We're converted. And so then we go into the holy place. Again, our, our goal is to come face to face with God, who is the, the Shekinah glory in the most holy place. So in the holy place, now there is the altar of incense. And that blood is continually applied to the horns of the altar. Horn always represents pride, selfishness. Okay, so that truth is applied to us. All right, and now we're in the holy place. We're communicating with God. This the incense. And then finally, in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, which is separated from the Shekinah glory by the lid. Okay, so what actually happened at that lid? Well, here are some other uh, translations of this verse. God showed that Christ is the throne of mercy, where God's approval is given through faith in Christ's blood. And I think, you know, Luther translated this, which into the English is the mercy seat, that lid. What really happened there? I think the best word would be we are reconciled by what happened. And Paul uses this in so many other places to describe what happened at the cross. God made us his friends at the cross. He reconciled us to him. And this is to bring us close to God, bring us face to face with God. And here in God's word where God's approval is given, through faith in Christ's blood. And the net version, God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat, directly from Luther there. Accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Again, why did Jesus come? Why did he die? It was to demonstrate the righteousness, the goodness, the love of God. And ultimately, that was revealed at the cross. And I'll put here again, I like Tim Jennings' version of this. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness and goodness. So again, so many times we can take one verse out of the Bible and build a whole... I mean, you can build any picture of God you want out of the Bible. A God who is angry and who needs to be appeased. But just when we take this passage, these 10 verses, the whole thing, eight times Paul says, trust, 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 trust. That's what God wants. Three times he says, Jesus came to reveal his righteousness, his goodness. And so this, this one little... Word in here should not be taken out of context to make God as an angry person whose wrath needs to be somehow assuaged by blood. We read the rest of the passage, which emphasizes the point made before. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins. But in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. There it is again. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous. The third time and that he puts right everyone who believes, who trusts in Jesus. What then can we boast about? Nothing. And what is the reason for this? Is it that we obey the law? No, but that we believe, we trust. For we conclude that a person is put right with God only through faith, trust, and not by doing what the law commands. I mean, how many times does Paul have to say it here? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Of course he is. God is one, and he will put the Jews right with himself on the basis of their faith. And he will put the Gentiles right through their faith. Does this mean that by this faith we do away with the law? No, not at all. Instead, we uphold the law. Okay, we agree the law is right in, um, in how it has condemned us, in a sense, and in, in how far apart we are. That's not how we're saved, though. We're saved by a trusting relationship with Jesus. Well, we don't stop. The next verse, Romans 4.1. Paul is now going to give an example of this righteousness by faith, this being right with God through trust in him. And here's his example. What shall we say then of Abraham, the father of our race? What was his experience? If he was put right with God by the things he did, he would not have something to boast about, but not in God's sight. The scripture says Abraham believed God, he trusted God, and because of his faith, his trust, God accepted him as righteous. So this is his now his example of everything I've just been telling you. Abraham, of course, was called God's friend. He knew God. Look at the way he talked with God so many times. He, and he trusted him. And that's why Abraham is the father of us all because this is, this is what God wants more than anything. So he goes on. For we have quoted the scripture. Abraham believed God and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. When did this take place? Was it before or after Abraham was circumcised? It was before, not after. He was circumcised later and his circumcision was a sign to show that because of his faith, God had accepted him as righteous before he had been circumcised. And so Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe, who trust in God and are accepted as righteous by him, even though they are not circumcised. So notice that the action, which in this case was circumcision, was a sign of a trusting relationship with God. And we'll have much more chance to talk about this when we go through Galatians and Ephesians, but our trust in God has a natural outflow, which is a change in the way we think, act and treat other people. That is a sign of a trusting relationship with God. We often try to start with the actions and so on, and try to work on that. Uh, really, all we're supposed to work on is our trusting relationship with God and that we have a true knowledge of what God is like. And again, just to reemphasize, the real Jew is the person who's a Jew on the inside, whose heart has been circumcised. So the circumcision for us is to have the law written on the heart, to be loving, kind people. That is the sign that we trust in Jesus. And so, now that we have been put right with God through faith, there it is again, through trust, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, if our conception of God has been one who's against us, one who we should be greatly feared of, how wonderful it is to see that God is just like Jesus. He wants to be our friend. And now we're at peace. Okay, we no longer have this, uh, this threat of someone who deep down we fear is, is out to get us. We are at peace with God. That's the end result of all of this. And I won't read the whole uh, passage here because we did when we went through John, but we want other descriptions. How does Paul interpret the cross? We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. We rejoice because of what what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who's now made us God's friends. And if we really see God to be our friend, uh, we are at peace. The truth has set us free. Now, again, we're still in chapter 5. I like this translation in the God's Word version. It is certain that death ruled because of one person's failure. It's even more certain that those who receive God's overflowing kindness and the gift of his approval will rule in life because of one person, Jesus Christ. Okay, so after making this point all the way through, and I'll just conclude here with, uh, we'll have to pick up on Romans next time, but I want to get back into... Uh, now some, Romans really climaxes through chapter eight. And maybe we'll stop there because chapter nine is the difficult one. But I wanna just uh, describe a little bit now as Paul comes to his really hammering all of this home. Here's a description. What shall we say then? Is the law evil and selfish because it increases the amount of evil and selfishness we see? So again, there is the law. What is the law? Our conscience, it's like fine tunes what we are really like. And it's just like uh, to say that we wouldn't want this. I mean, God makes it very hard for us to be lost because he's put this inside of us that we can see when we are deviating, all right? And it should naturally cause us to turn uh, back to God. I mean, it would be like saying, I wish I didn't have any pain fibers in my hand so I could just keep my hand in the fire, all right? But no, God puts those there so that we know when something is bad and we naturally recoil away from it. For I would not have known what evil and selfishness looks like if it wasn't for the diagnostic efficiency of the law. I would not have realized that coveting was evil and selfish if the law didn't say, don't covet. But selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the law is only a diagnostic instrument and not a remedy, multiplied every covetous desire within me. For apart from the diagnostic ability of the law, sin is unrecognizable. I think some of you can tell this is written by a physician here who's kind of putting this in some uh, terminology that maybe we're familiar with. Once I thought I was healthy and free from the infection of fear and selfishness. But then the commandment examined me, exposed how utterly infected I was, and diagnosed me as terminal. Okay, But again, I think this is the meaning of the passage. I discovered that the very commandment given only to diagnose my condition... I had unwittingly attempted to use as a cure, and thus my condition only worsened. So you see, the law shows us this is what we're like. Now do we try to use the law to heal ourselves? That doesn't make any sense. For selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the commandment could only diagnose and not cure, deceived me into thinking I could be cured by working to keep the commandment, but instead my terminal state only worsened. So understand this, the law diagnoses perfectly And the commandment is the standard of what is right and good, set apart by God to reveal what is evil and destructive. And Paul goes on now in the rest of Romans chapter 7 to describe how he himself is a great sinner. And oh, the good that I wish that I could do, but I don't do. Paul himself struggled with all of this. And finally here in verse 24, what an unhappy man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is taking me to death. Thanks be to God who does this through our Lord Jesus Christ. This then is my condition. On my own, I can serve God's law only with my mind. I want to, while my human nature serves the law of sin. And you'll notice here, Romans 7.25 goes right into Romans 8.1. Remember, there's nothing inspired about the verses or the chapters Those were added hundreds and hundreds of years later. So we shouldn't stop at the end of Romans chapter 7. We read on. This is how Paul is feeling. And then he says, there is no condemnation. Now, for those who live in union with Christ Jesus. Notice that's the key. To live in union with Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Oops. Because what is this saying here? This is just like the woman caught in adultery who was... Um, I mean, look how she felt. There she is being condemned by those men, and Jesus comes along and says, I don't condemn you. Now, what happened there? This was a great outpouring of love, kindness, graciousness, Jesus to that woman. Hey, I'm not condemned, all right? And that stimulated in her a relationship and union with Jesus, all right? So it is, we realize, I think, eventually, as we feel like Paul, And this is so often the case, as we come closer and closer to God, the true light, what do we see in ourselves as we come closer to God? Our defects of character, which maybe we weren't aware of, but as we come closer to God, they become magnified. And we see things there that we didn't even realize were there. Okay, so it's a natural thing of coming closer and closer to God that we see in turn the darkness that is within ourselves. And the remedy here is to realize that our God does not condemn us. He loves us and he doesn't want us, okay, now don't spend too much time looking at yourself because that's a very, very depressing thing. And so what I want you to realize here is there's no condemnation and be in union with me. And for the law of the spirit, which brings us life again, in union with Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? The law of the spirit, well, described earlier on in Romans. God has poured out his love into our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's not just look at our own character flaws because that will get us nowhere. We should instead be looking to how good our God is and what will he do? He will pour out his love into our hearts. And again, in another place, so you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children adopted into his family, calling him father, dear father. For his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are God's children. Okay, this is how we heal, which is we turn to God, our heavenly physician, we trust him, we love him, we realize that he calls us his children and we have that relationship with him. Let's not spend too much time becoming depressed about how we are. And so Paul then, as a last slide, this is, the key point that he's coming to. And this is the Phillips translation, which is is really good. In face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else that we can need? Who would dare to accuse us whom God has chosen? The judge himself has declared us free from sin. Who is in a position to condemn? Notice, who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Now, really here, what Christ does in most translations is Christ intercedes for us. But remember, what is intercession? Intercession is to bring us closer to God. Christ is our intercessor. Christ is God. God is the one who intercedes and brings us to the Father. So can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, pain, or persecution? Can lack of clothes and food, danger to life and limb, the threat of force of arms? No, in all these things, we win an overwhelming victory through him who has proved his love for us. I have become absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, neither messenger of heaven nor monarch of earth, neither what happens today nor what may happen tomorrow, Neither a power from on high nor a power from below nor anything else in God's whole world has any power to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we tend to just, these last words, filler words, in Jesus Christ our Lord. No, that's the key. How do we know God loves us? How do we know the great love that that he just wants to pour out on us? It is in or through God. Jesus Christ, that's the ultimate demonstration that all of this is true. We could really not say that confidently about God if we didn't have the record, the demonstration, the words and the actions of Jesus, who is God. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, this would seem to be such a good conclusion that Paul has come to that uh, really things are are quite simple at their most basic level, that we come to believe how good, kind, gracious, even humble the all-powerful God of the universe is, and that we come to admire that, we put our trust in you, and that we stay in this trusting relationship with you, and uh, we trust that in this process that you will use us to reach others with the goodness of your own character. Amen.